Hopefully you had a chance to get together with some family over Christmas. Uh, Tara and I did. We were back home in Pennsylvania for a few days this week. And the weekend before, we got together with Tara's parents. And whenever we get together with Tara's parents, we always like to play games. They're just a kind of a game-playing family. Maybe you guys are like that, too. Maybe some of your family is like that. We don't play a, a whole lot of games. I wish we would play more because they're really fun after we get done playing. Anyway, we were playing this one game. Uh, it was a kind of a trivia game. And, and we had to list as many people as we could from the West uh, for like the Wild West of America, that part of history, as we could. And uh, I've always been intrigued by that part of, by that part of history. I, I kind of like it. Um, to, it was pretty exciting to think, about, to think about these people that were willing to you know, risk their lives, to uproot their families, and to move to help settle these new areas, these new territories. Um, and uh, you know, it took a lot of courage and a lot of faith and, and just a lot of, uh, boy, just a, a, a lot of guts, really, to go out and to do that. And there wasn't always law and there wasn't always order and, and uh, pretty exciting times that, you know, that, they, uh, that they lived in. Well, anyway, two of the people that I was able to name were Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. And I got to be honest with you, I, I don't know them from history books. I know them from movies that I've watched. And, um, and pretty, pretty, pretty cool figures, though, um, in, the course of, uh, in the course of history. And when, you think, when, and when I think about movies and I think about one of the most intense dramatic scenes that I think I've ever seen, I think about this, this, this showdown that they had, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and, and Wyatt's brothers, uh, at the OK Corral with the Cowboys. Uh, who were a gang. And when I think of the Cowboys, it, it, I always think of bad people because uh, I think of the Dallas Cowboys. And, um, and, and so, and so I, I, can, I, can, I can appreciate, I can appreciate, you know, this, uh, uh, this scene there. You know, it, it's funny, back home in Philadelphia, when, when we play Dallas Cowboys, we play them tonight, um, it, it just brings out the worst in people. It's hilarious to see sometimes. I mean, even like, like people that are 85, 90 years old, these old ladies are saying, go beat those cowboys. You've got to beat those cowboys. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great time. Anyway, it's a fun rivalry. But when I think of one of the most intense scenes that I can think of in, in movies, I think of that scene, the OK Corral, where these guys go to, to, uh, to arrest you know, these cowboys that are there. And, um, and it's, just, it's just an incredible, dramatic scene. These two groups of gunfighters kind of squaring off at each other, and you kind of wonder what's going to happen, and, and just a pretty intense scene. Um, we are going to have showdowns like that in our lives as well. Maybe, maybe more intense, maybe less intense, but no, but no doubt in 2011, we're going to have some showdowns, some, some, some people that we're going to square off against or situations that we're going to square off against or whatever it's going to be. We're going to have some pretty dramatic showdowns. Maybe even tomorrow you'll, you'll have a, a showdown with the scale in your bathroom, you know. And as the beginning of the year and, you know, it's, it's the time to kind of check and see where you're at and, and the holidays are over. And, and so you'll kind of walk into your bathroom. I'm going to do this. And uh, you, you, you kind of you eye it up and you kind of stare at it for a while and you put in fresh batteries to make sure it's working properly and uh, you take off your socks, you know, because they add a few pounds. And, and, uh, and, and so you, you, and then you kind of take that, that walk, you know, small step for humanity, giant leap for mankind. And you take that step onto that scale and you see, you know, kind of what have these holidays cost you, you know, in terms of weight and stuff. And, and you're, you're smiling because you're probably going to have to do it tomorrow. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting to see how we're going to do. You're going to have showdowns more dramatic than that, though, this year, too. There are going to be some real situations that you're going to have to face off. And maybe it is going to be a job situation, a challenge that's going to come up that you can't anticipate right now, or maybe you are anticipating it. Or, it's, or it could be a person that you're going to have to score off against, or, a, or a, a sickness that you weren't counting on. You know, if we could go back to the beginning of 2010, I imagine that we wouldn't have chosen all the situations and the, 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 the people that we had to deal with the way we did in 2010. But yet, the, those situations happen, because that's life, and that's what happens. And 2011 will be no different. One of the most intense 
um, showdowns of all time, though, happened in the course of the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 4. That's what we're going to look at today, Matthew chapter 4. So go ahead and grab your Bible and take it out. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will come forward. Just raise your hand up real high, and uh, they'll give you a Bible so that you can follow along today. You'll definitely want to. Matthew is at the beginning of the, uh, the Gospels. It's the first Gospel, the beginning of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, Satan and Jesus have this incredible showdown. This is literally the original Western duel. Uh, this is west of the, uh, of the Dead Sea, this desert where Jesus goes and where he and Satan square off and uh, kind of feel each other out and see who they're up against. Uh, a pretty awesome story, um, part of God's story here. We're going to continue our Rebel series today to see how Jesus made things different. You know, Jesus was so different. He faced life different. He lived life differently. And I, I have loved this Rebel series that we have done over, uh, over this holiday season because you know, we, we don't view life, we don't look at life the way that Jesus did. He brings so many different things to the table. This has been so good. And the feedback that we've gotten from you guys as a pastoral team is that it's been so good for you guys as well to look at uh, Christmas through, through different lenses and through the idea of Jesus being a rebel. And we're going to take a look at a pretty awesome story today here in Matthew chapter 4. It's where Jesus and, uh, Jesus and Satan meet face to face for the very first time since God has put on skin at Christmas. By this time, Jesus is now about 30, and uh, he is ready to begin his public ministry. You know, some scholars would say this, isn't even, this, this scene here in Jesus' story is even as important as the cross, because here is where Jesus comes up face-to-face with Satan and lets him know who he is and what he's going to do and that he will be defeated. So pretty powerful. Go ahead and stand up, and uh, let's read this together. The first 11 verses, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Let's look at this together. Here we go. Ready? Read. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. You can have a seat. Thanks for reading along. This uh, Matthew chapter 4 happens after Matthew chapter 3, which which I know is not news to you. But in Matthew chapter 3, at the very end of it, is where Jesus is baptized. And up until that point, Jesus' life had been in pretty much obscurity. No doubt he, he grew up with his family in Nazareth. He probably took on the trade of his earthly father Joseph as a carpenter and really didn't make any kind of public appearance. Nothing is recorded in a scripture that we know of except for a story where he was 12 years old and he went to the temple. But even that was not super, super out of the ordinary or anything unusual. 
And, uh, and so Jesus um, be, now is beginning the public portion of his life. He, he's lived as a normal human being like you and I do. He's, he's gone through the, the, the normal um, patterns of life like you and I have, uh, like you and I do. And, and now he's coming to the, to the public part of his ministry. He gets baptized. This voice comes from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And last week, Jim looked at the father aspect of Christmas, which was uh, an incredible, powerful look at how, how God, the father, viewed Christmas. And, and here is one of those times where he, where he calls out of heaven and says, this is my son whom I'm lo- who I love. I'm proud of him, and I am well pleased. And this sets off Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus now is led, it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, by the Spirit. So he's led by God into the desert to be tempted or to be tested by the devil. And he fasts 40 days and 40 nights, part of God's plan, part of the leading of the Spirit. He is hungry, and then here comes Satan onto the scene. Kind of like single combat warriors, kind of walking around, eyeing each other up, is really what is happening here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Satan is looking to see kind of who he's up against for real. What, what are the capabilities that this man has? And uh, that's the scene that's kind of set for us here in um, chapter 4 of Matthew. Satan goes after one of his weak points. He, he's hungry, verse 2 says. And so in verse 3, the tempter comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He goes after Jesus where he's weak. He tempts him to, um, to, to get something to eat because he knew that he was hungry. Satan was really, really, you know, he says to him, If, if you are the Son of God. You know, Satan can read the scriptures. He was, he, he was a, able to you know, study the Old Testament, the scriptures that were available at that time. And, and he was able to read through that. And he knew the prophecies about a Messiah coming, about a Savior coming, a person who would save the world. But it's not like God would have let Satan in on every detail of how he was going to lay those prophecies out. So it's not like Satan really knew who this man was. He didn't know the the depth, I don't necessarily think. He didn't really know who he was up against because other people had come before and other people had done different miracles and there were special births and special announcements and all kinds of stuff. The stuff that that, that had happened up to that point in Jesus' life, there there had been portions of that that had been done by others as well. And so Satan kind of comes to see who he is up against here in these scriptures. God doesn't lay out every plan for Satan and let him know, okay, here comes, you know, God, the son to the world now. You know, there had been a lot of attention. The angels came and, and, and Herod, of course, tried to, to wipe out all the infants, you know, when Jesus was born. And so there was definitely some attention to his birth. But again, there had been attention to other people's births before. Even John the Baptist had a pretty incredible um, story of, of how he was born just right now. And so Satan, you know, is this guy another prophet like John the Baptist? Is he another angel, you know, like Gabriel or, or even like myself, Satan? Or, or who is this guy? Or is he more, something more than that? He's coming up against him really to kind of find out who he is up against. And so he tempts him to, 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 to where he is weak to see if he will fail like other people do, and uh, like we do. And Jesus quotes to him from Scripture. He says, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and if your Bible is like mine, there's a little note there that tells you where Jesus was quoting from. And it wasn't by some accident. And he was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. So go ahead and keep your finger there in Matthew, but turn back to the Old Testament. The fifth book in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus doesn't pick some, just some passage. He picks one on purpose. Um, the, 
the author, the Holy Spirit, the author of the Scriptures, puts these two together, and, and you'll see why. It's pretty powerful. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and uh, verses 2 to 5. Chapter, or, chapter 8, verse 2, Deuteronomy says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you." Pretty incredible story, portion of the story here. This is, this is Moses saying this to Israel, reminding them of their history. And, and it's, it's powerful. I love how Scripture comes together like this. When you begin to really dig into it and, and you kind of pay attention to some of those notes, that are, those helps that are given to us in our Bibles, and you turn back and you say, well, why did Jesus quote from Deuteronomy 8? And you begin to see that the Scriptures were going out of their way to compare these situations, Right? When you look back and you look at the details here of Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says that the people of Israel were led by God into the desert for 40 years to test them in order to know what was in their heart. Doesn't that sound familiar, right? Because in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led by who? By God into where? The desert for how long? 40 days, same, similar period to 40 years, for what purpose? To be tempted or to be tested to see what was in his heart. And it's like the scriptures are going out of their way to compare how God's people or how people respond to a situation and how Jesus will respond to the same situation. Do you see that? They're kind of lined up against each other. And, and, and even the words are so similar, the scripture is screaming out, Look, I want you to compare the people of Israel, and I want you to compare Jesus. And what is the point that the passage is trying to make? These passages, when you put them next to each other, the point really that they're trying to make is that where people fail, Jesus will not fail. God led Israel out into the desert. He caused them to be hungry. He has Jesus fasting so that Jesus is hungry. And then God comes through for the people of Israel. He provides for them manna, this bread that came from heaven that no one ever knew about. He provided for them to show them that you don't live by bread alone, but you live by me. I'm the one that you trust. I'm the one that takes care of you. And now Jesus is out in the desert and he's hungry and God is having him fast so that he's getting this hunger. And now Satan is coming and tempting him to fail or to fall, to not trust God the same way that the Israelites didn't trust God. But Jesus has a different answer for Satan. He does not fail the way that the people did. Where people fail, Jesus will not fail. And there's another comparison that Jesus is, is kind of being put up against, not just to the people of Israel, but also to a specific person. Uh, to Adam. And, and we'll take a look at that. Turn to Romans chapter 5. That's in the New Testament. Romans chapter 5. Jesus is also compared against Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can write that chapter, that verse down too, 1 Corinthians 15, but I want you to turn to Romans 5. Jesus is actually called the second Adam. He's called the second Adam. There was the first Adam, the man who was born or who was, uh, who was created by God. At the very beginning of the, of the world, 
And then uh, there is Jesus, and he is called the second Adam. They are compared against each other. Take a look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 19. Is, we'll kind of skip around some of those, but we'll look at some of those verses. A couple weeks ago, we were driving in the car, and, and Ellie says, I wish Adam hadn't have sinned. And uh, I'm not sure what she was thinking or why she said that, but, but she's actually, she, she was right on theologically because his sin causes us a lot of problems. We're going to see that. Romans 5, 12 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. In other words, the reason that you and I are sinners is not because we sin. I don't become a sinner when I sin. I don't become an evildoer when I do evil. I'm a sinner by birth. I was born that way, and that's why I sin. It's not the other way around. And, and so that, and that sin was passed down to me um, from my family, who got it from their family, from their family, from them, all the way back to Adam. And so all of us are born, you know, enemies of God. We are born sinners. We're born that way. That's why we make the choices that we do, because that's who we are. And so this has been passed down from Adam. As sin entered the world through one man, and now death through sin, now we're going to see him get compared to Jesus Look down to verse 17. For if by the trespass or the sin of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And so just as sin gets passed down to us from Adam, Jesus' righteousness, because he lived differently, because he lived righteously and perfectly, he is able to pass that down to us. And that is what makes us right with God. That is why he is able to offer forgiveness to us because he lived that perfect life. He trades his righteousness for our sinful lives and that is how we stand before God righteous because Jesus was. See, Jesus couldn't just die as a baby you know, and then die because he could die for the world and somehow pay for our sins. He had to live a righteous life and, and, and that righteous life is what rescues us, is what we trade then for God's um, forgiveness, and it is what is given to us, and it is how we are made right with God. And so there's a lot more at stake here than is Jesus hungry. Uh, there's a lot more than is he going to give in and eat what he shouldn't. When Satan is coming here to tempt him, th- this, is, this is a big deal. Jesus has to live a righteous life for you and I to be made right with God, for us to, to, be able to, be, to be able to be righteous, we are counting on his righteousness. And so where, where Israel failed, Jesus will not. Where Adam failed, Adam met um, Satan and was tempted in the garden, and he fell, Jesus will not fail. And so the scriptures, again, it goes out of their way at the very beginning uh, of Jesus' ministry here in Matthew 4 to compare Jesus to people and where people fail, Jesus will not fail. 
Back in Deuteronomy, God caused them to be hungry, and then he fed them to show them man doesn't live on bread alone. But they didn't fully trust God. They looked for other sources of meeting their needs. And would Jesus do the same? Really, when you turn back to Matthew 4, the root question of Satan's temptation is this. Will God really take care of you? Will God really take care of you? That, that was what the Israelites struggled with. That's what we struggle with as people, is will God really take care of me when it, when it comes down to it? If I live his way, I mean, is he going to take care of my needs? Satan says to Jesus, I'm showing you an easier way. He is starving you. I'm showing you a way that you can, can have that need met right now. There, there's an easier way for you to live. I'm giving you an opportunity to meet your needs. Why would you wait? Satan is saying to Jesus. And uh, Jesus' answer was, God has got my back. I don't need your help. Man, man doesn't live on bread alone. I, I don't need you. I, God has my back. Well, then in verse 5, Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes at him with another temptation. It says, Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. You know, as I was reading this passage, I was thinking today, it's, it's pretty amazing. Satan and Jesus go to the temple together from the desert, uh, from the desert that is, that is outside of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, and then they go to the temple together. Jesus limited himself to human limitations. You know, he, he didn't just perform miracles just to show off. And he didn't just walk through, you know, walls. He didn't just, hey, hey, watch this and do kind of some kind of party trick, and I'm on this side of the room, and now I'm over here, and you know, he, he didn't use his powers that way. He didn't do that. And, and, and so he, he subjected himself to human limitations. So here he is, he's walking. And, and when angels appear, which Satan is, is, is an angel, um, they often appear as humans. There's really, you know, no reason to think that they didn't walk together from the desert um, to Jerusalem. I don't know that for sure, but as I was thinking about this week, you know, that, w- that would make sense that they did that. And that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. It's pretty remarkable that Jesus and Satan go for a walk together. And, and, and you kind of wonder who they walked by and, and if people real, you know, would have only realized who was walking past them. You know, scriptures say that we should always be kind of to, 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 uh, to strangers because we don't know when we're entertaining angels. We don't know who we're talking to. And, and here, everybody you know, really had no idea. Here comes God and here comes Satan down the road together and they're walking into the temple and they're climbing to the highest point of the temple. Pretty incredible. I was trying to think of, of you know, how I could relate to Jesus. Sometimes Jim and I will go on trips together and, and that's kind of the closest I can come to how Jesus felt here going on this trip with, with Satan. And, um, and, and, and so Jesus and, and Satan come together. You know, you know he, he, he preaches so many more weeks than I do. He has, and so I owe him a lot. And, and so I, gotta, I just gotta, I gotta give it to him every chance I get um, because he, he certainly takes every chance he has. And um, anyway, Jim and I actually love each other quite a bit. I've, uh, I've been mentoring him for a number of years. And... Uh, <laughs> He, he is really, he's really a special person to me. Um, anyway, back to the text, though. Verse, um, verse 5, Satan and, and uh, Jesus go to the temple, and, and, and Satan says, you know, drop down, jump off of here right now, and, and you know that the angels will come and protect you. And it's interesting, he starts to quote Scripture. He kind of uses what Jesus does, and he starts, you know, using these verses that, you know, say that God won't let anything bad happen to you, and, and he, will, he will save you. And, and so, he, he, you know, he's really tempting him. 
if Jesus were to start off his ministry by going to the highest point of the temple and jumping down into the courts and, and just kind of landing and floating down there, and, and so the angels would catch him and place him down nicely, and that would be, that would be quite a start to a ministry. I think people would say, wow, I, I got to follow that guy. That, that's pretty impressive. And, and, and it's like Satan is giving this opportunity to say, man, you can just, you can just do it right now. Just show off. Just, just, just jump down there right now. You know God's not going to let anything happen to you. Or, or maybe Satan was putting a little seed of doubt in his mind. You know, maybe, maybe God won't really, you know, protect you. Then, then what, what if he doesn't? Then maybe he's not as powerful as you think he is, or maybe you're not who you think you are. You know, Satan's always good at just throwing a little bit of doubt at us. And, and he's trying to throw that at, J, at uh, Jesus here. Of course, Jesus sees through it, and he quotes Deuteronomy um, 6.16, right back at him and takes him, takes him to another scripture and says, I'm not here to test God. Again, here's where Israel failed. You look back at Deuteronomy 6, and, and here's another spot where Israel failed. They test God after he proves himself over and over to them. And, and again, the scripture saying, Jesus says, I'm not going to fail. Where Israel fails, where people fail, I'm not going to. And um, Satan then tempts him again. We keep, keep moving through the passage here in verse 7. Jesus answers him, it's written, do not put your Lord to God's test. Okay, in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdom of the world and, and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he says, if you will bow down and worship me. So Satan takes him to this tall mountain and Satan, you know, is the ruler of this world and, and, he, and he takes uh, Jesus up there and, and he says, look at all these kingdoms. They can be yours right now. And he, he shows them their splendor. He, you know, it's like look, the natural resources here. And, and, and these people are really good at this. And, and this is pretty awesome here. And, and it's like he's trying to sell him. He's, he's making Jesus a sales pitch. He shows them all their splendor, it says. And he's trying to say, Jesus, man, this is, this is awesome. As if Jesus, you know, didn't create it all and doesn't know that already. But, but Satan's doing his best to, to pull out all the stops and everything he's got. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, you can have it all right now for just a moment of worship. You can skip everything that you think you have to go through. I'll give it to you right now. Just for one moment, you bow down and you worship me. Again, there had to be, in, in the human side of Jesus, there had to be something to that temptation to think that he could skip everything that he knew he would have to go through in his life and to not be able to do that and then still be set up his kingdom that he eventually will set up oh, had to be something that was a little bit tempting to him. Jesus, uh, Satan knows where to kind of, um, where to pull us. Pull us, pull at us, but um, but Jesus says no. Um, Satan, get away from me. Um, scripture says, "You worship the Lord your God and serve Him only." Verse eleven: The devil leaves him, and the angels come and attend to him. And again, here here we see the Father heart of God, which Jim pointed out last week. You know, he he sends his angels. Here's a time where he sends his people, his angels, to come and to minister to his son and to give him strength. So, what do we do? with this incredible story here from Matthew where Jesus and Satan are kind of in the ring together, looking at, t- testing each other, you know, kind of mano a mano, one-on-one, just going at each other here. What do we do with all this? Well, there are a few, you know, enormous implications from this passage. And we're going to take a look at just three today. Just going to kind of focus on three that we could. There's, there's several, but we're going to pick out three that we're going to focus on this morning. Here's the first one. Because Jesus won we can win, and we can change. Jesus said no to temptation. Let's not miss that in the story. Jesus overcame temptation, and you and I can do that as well. We can say no. We can win. We can change. We don't have to stay who we are. We don't have to stay with the same um, problems in our lives, the same sinful patterns in our lives. 
we actually have the opportunity to change because Jesus did it. He led the way. He set the example. Because Jesus won, we can win, we can change. He is the perfect high priest because he understands what it's like to be tempted, but he overcame the sin. He actually stood up to Satan and he said, no, and with his help, we can do it too. God can change you and I if we, if we humble ourselves and we surrender ourselves to him to say, God, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm willing to change. And, 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 and everything is on the line. Everything is, is, is open to you to work in my life. If we have that kind of attitude, he can change us. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 4 at the end of your New Testament. And, and if you're looking for a passage of Scripture to maybe memorize in this new year, this would be a great one. This would be an awesome passage for you just to, to claim and to know because it's, you're gonna, when you see it, you're going to know you're going to use it quite a bit. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14 to 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. He has gone through the heavens. In other words, Jesus isn't the kind of high priest that just has stayed up there in heaven and says, yeah, just you got to do better down there. You got to stop sinning and, and you got to, you know, you got to get through that world. Jesus left the, the, the glory and the perfection and the splendor of heaven to enter into our world. And, and so he's, he, is, he is leading us from down here. He has been here. He's done and he's lived what we've lived and he's done what we've done. And, and so he is that kind of high priest who has left the heavens Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us then approach the great, the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, when we go to God, we, we don't have to say, oh, God, I'm sorry, I have to come to you again and ask for help. We can go to his throne of grace with confidence that he understands, that, that he knows what it's like to be tempted, that he understands what it's like to have weaknesses. Jesus had weaknesses in the human side of him. He, he was weak at times. He was hungry in this temptation moment. He was, he was willing to, to think about giving in. I mean, he, he, that sounded tempting to him. He understands our struggles. And so when we go to God and we say, God, oh, I'm so sorry that I have to come to you again, but but would you please help me? Would you help me to overcome this sin in my life, God? Would you please help me to break this cycle of, of sin in my family's life? I don't want to be like my family. I, don't want to, I want to change. I want to have a different lineage. I want to change. I don't want to pass this on to my kids. God, would you please change me? He is not unsympathetic. He is so sympathetic. He says, I love you. I'll give you mercy. I'll help you. I want to. And we go back to him the next day with the same prayer request. He is full of mercy again. And he's full of grace again. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have someone there who wants to sympathize and can sympathize with us because he lived life. He knows what it's like. And so this year, you can cry out to him. And, and if you have that humble heart that says, God, change me, he can change you. You have someone who is sympathetic. How, but the question is, how bad do you want to overcome the sin in your life? How bad do you want to overcome sin? One person wrote this, temptation is often the combination of a real need 
and a possible doubt that create an inappropriate desire. Temptation is often a real need and a possible doubt that create an inappropriate desire. And here's what, I, here's what they meant by that. Most of our desires that we have are normal and they're good. Most of the things that we want in our life aren't necessarily bad or evil. They're normal, they're good. But what happens is we have this need in our life, this normal, this normal good need, but instead of trusting God or God's way to meet that need, we look for substitutes that will meet it quicker, that will meet it right now, that will meet it faster, that will do it in the timing that we want it done in. And instead of trusting God's timing and God's way, and so Satan will twist our needs that are probably most of them legitimate, and then we'll try to find illegitimate ways to meet those needs. And that's when we're tempted. That's what temptation is. Temptation is often meeting it, a real need, but in an inappropriate way. God wants you to satisfy your needs in the right way and at the right time. And when we begin to doubt God's way, Satan then has a door to twist our desires, to fill it in a way that is separate from God. The sad thing is that the ways that we look to satisfy our needs won't really satisfy us anyway. See, we have an emptiness inside of us that can only be filled by God. When, Je- when Jesus met with the woman at the well, John chapter 4, she, she had this desire for a relationship, and she had struggled through life, and, and, and Jesus points out to her that she had gone through relationship after relationship after relationship. She was on her fifth relationship, four marriages, and on her fifth one, and, and she still hadn't met that need that she had. She was struggling. And Jesus says to her, the water that you keep going after, you're going to always be thirsty. He said, only I can give you the water that will make you not thirsty anymore. See, only Jesus can satisfy our needs. And so in our lives, when, when we're tempted to, to respond, to, 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 to kind of meet that need of anger that we have, because someone hurt us, and, and so we're going, to, we're going to satisfy that anger by getting revenge or by becoming bitter. Or it, the, the thing is, that won't satisfy us long term. That, that quickly runs out. Or, or when, we, when we have that need, we're, we're lonely, and, and, and we need relationship. And so we begin to kind of lower our standards, and, and we just take, we'll just let anybody begin to influence us. We'll let anybody become our close friend and companion so they can influence us. We'll let anybody into a relationship with us. Um, that's when we're tempted to, to meet those needs outside of God's standards. Or, or, or maybe you're a husband, and, and, and your wife rejects you sexually, and so you're drawn to meet that need through pornography or some other way. That's how Satan twists that real need that we have. That's a real pain. That's a struggle, that rejection that's there. Then when we seek to fill it in the wrong way is when we are tempted by Satan. And the reality is those things won't satisfy us anyway. We'll have to get high again. We'll have to go after that, 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 uh, that same temptation again and again and again. And what is often the real root issue in most temptations is this very question right here. Can I trust God? Can I trust God? And, and I got to tell you, I'm learning this. Even, even you know, over the last year or so, this has been something that I've 
I've wrestled with and struggling with. If I really do, thing, do things God's way, will he really take care of me? Will he come through for me? Because I see an easier way if I do it this way right here in front of me. I see a way through this if, if I can do it. But if I do it the right way, if I live my life righteously, then I'm counting on God coming through for me. And that's, that's a scary place to live. You know, it's easier when I can just do it myself. But can I really trust God? And this is what Satan was really asking Jesus. Why, why, why would, you know, Jesus, Satan's saying, why would he cause you to, to be starving here? I'm, I'm saying there's, I, if you have power, you can turn these stones into bread right now. You can do it your way. Why are, you, why are you trusting, you know, God to provide for you? You can do it your way. Will God come through for me? Does God love me as much as he says he does? And when I begin to say, God, I know that I can trust you. You're in charge of me. I, I give my life to you. And when I begin to live that way and say, God, I'm going to reject this sin. I'm going to reject this temptation because I know that your way is best because I'm going to follow you. That's when we begin to have victory over temptation. God, I trust you. I trust your path. No holds bar. I'm, go, I'm following you. You're in charge of every part of my life. That's when you'll begin to see victory over temptation in your life. But as you begin to hold on to that doubt, and you begin to hold on to, to the, I don't know if I can really trust God, you'll continue to fall to, to temptation. See, here, here's something that you and I have to believe. When Jesus came into the world to die for our sins, he didn't just die to take the penalty of our sin away. He died to take the power of sin in your life. When he died on the cross, he took the penalty for sin, but he also died to take away the power that sin has over you. You don't have to live being a slave to temptation and a slave to sin. You can say no. You can change you can overcome whatever is in your life with the help of Jesus Christ. There's a second point that, that I want to point out. Because Jesus won, you and I can win, we can change. But secondly, because Jesus won, we can persevere through whatever life brings our way. You can persevere through whatever. Jesus persevered through this trial, through this temptation. Satan was offering Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that all of Israel wanted. A conquering Messiah. One that would do miracles on command to show off his power, to show off his, his might. Make yourself a meal. Jump off this building. Just bow down and you'll have all these kingdoms. Build an empire for yourself right now. Who wants to have a suffering Messiah? Israel didn't truth be told, we probably don't either. We, we want life to be easy. We want God to, to ride into our lives and give us everything we want, right when we want it. And we want to live on top of the world. And we love the passage of scriptures that talk about how God will bring blessing to our lives and how God will bring joy to us and how God will, will bring healing and God will bring all this good stuff into our lives. But we miss a lot of the scripture that talks about the suffering and the pain that life brings to us as well. Jesus had to go through that. You know, it had to be tempting to him to avoid all the pain that he would personally have to endure. You know, why, why would he not want to just build an empire of good where people were forced to choose to follow him? 
Why would he leave it up to us to choose whether or not, you know, to have this kind of free will where we would, where we would obey God or not obey God or worship God? I mean, we are so up and down in our lives. And you would think that it would drive God crazy. He would just be pulling out his hair. But instead, he's up there with compassion and with, with mercy that we already looked at in Hebrews 4. This was the way that he chose for it to be. You know, I would have been tempted to say, I'm just going to jump down and just force everybody to worship me and force everybody to follow me. And that's what Satan was offering him. Just, just show them what you can do and, and they will follow you. You know, this temptation surfaced again another time. Once when Jesus was explaining to his disciples how he would have to suffer and die, Peter said to him, you'll never suffer. You'll, you, you, don't, you don't go through that. And what did Jesus say to Satan? Get behind me, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. Satan tries to come in again at another time and say, you don't have to go through that, Jesus. You don't have to suffer and die. Just set up your kingdom right now. Jesus says, that's not the plan. Get away from me. Peter's probably saying, well, what did I say? He didn't realize Satan was behind that, the same way he'd been behind these temptations in, in Matthew chapter four. You see, there are no shortcuts to the will of God. There are no shortcuts to the will of God. Take a look at uh, 1 Peter 5.10. If you're still in Hebrews, it's not far from there. Just keep turning towards the end, just a book or two to 1 Peter. It's right after James, before Revelation, 1 Peter 5. Here is a church that, that the Apostle Peter is writing to that was under heavy persecution that knew what it was like to go through suffering and probably was wondering, man, why did I sign up for this? I, I thought that uh, life with God would be easier. I, I thought he was coming back for us and he's not yet. And, and they were maybe starting to doubt. And, and Peter gives them some good sound advice here. First Peter 5, verse 10. says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. But he says you will suffer a little while first. Or you can flip over to another verse, Romans 8, 18. It says that the, the suffering that we go through now will not be able to compare to the glory that we will have in eternity. Things will be right in heaven. We talked about it with the kids last week, actually, how, how things will be right one day. But right now, while we're here in this world, we're going through this pain. We go through suffering. We go through trials. We go through temptations. That's a part of life because there are no shortcuts to the will of God. If we want to share in the glory that God brings us, then we must also share in the suffering. Jesus could have cut through a lot, right through a lot of pain and heartache and just taken over in the beginning of his ministry, but he had to suffer in order to save us. A penalty for sin had to be paid and he had to endure the life that he endured and the suffering that he endured so that we could be saved. And if we are to be like our leader, then our lives will be met with pain and testing as well. But because he was able to overcome, so will we. We can get through whatever life brings our way. We can persevere through it because Jesus did. So can we. Finally, third, because Jesus won, we can have heaven. Because Jesus won this battle with Matthew, or in the, in the gospel of Matthew here with Satan, we can have heaven. Where Israel lost, Jesus won. 
where Adam lost, Jesus won. Just as the first Adam met Satan, so the last Adam met the enemy too. Adam met Satan in a beautiful garden. Jesus met him in the wilderness. Adam had everything that he ever needed there in that garden. Jesus was starving after 40 days of fasting. Adam lost the battle and he plunged humanity into sin and to death. But Jesus won this battle and he went on to defeat Satan again, once and for all on the cross. Let's wrap up this morning by looking at Colossians chapter two, a powerful passage of scripture that shows the the power that was displayed by Jesus on the cross and what it actually means for you and for me. Colossians chapter two, verses 13 to 15. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Again, you and I were born sinners. We were born dead. We were born enemies of God, separated from him because of the sin that we were born with. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. In other words, the charges that are written up against you, because you and I are sinners, all these charges are written against us. John, he does this, he does this. He does this. He's done this. He's not a great husband. He's not a great dad. He's a horrible pastor. All these charges that are written against me, all these charges that are written against you, when Jesus died on the cross, he took those charges and he nailed them to the cross. And Satan cannot accuse you and I anymore with those because they are forgiven, because they're already paid for. There's no penalty that we can pay. It's already been paid. That's what the cross did for us. They were nailed to the cross that canceled our debt. It canceled that code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to, it, opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15 says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. In other words, Satan has no power over us anymore. Jesus took his power away. He's been disarmed. And so when he tempts us, when he tricks us, all he has are lies. He has nothing to stand on. He has no truth to stand on. It's been paid. The the debt's been canceled. It's not there anymore. He has been disarmed. Because Jesus won, because he said no to Satan, because he stood up to him and he defeated him once and for all on the cross, Satan has no power over us and we can have heaven because of that. We can be forgiven. As we have wrapped up each message in this series, the Rebel series, we have given an opportunity for people to begin a personal relationship with God. And you can do that today. If you came in here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with God, you don't know that you would have heaven. You don't know that you can stand up to, God, to, to Satan. You don't feel like you can change. You feel like you're stuck in the rut that you're in. You feel like you're stuck with the life that you have. Listen, Jesus can offer to you a different way. Jesus can offer to you a better way. Jesus can offer to you forgiveness. He can make you alive. You are dead in your sins. He can make you alive in Christ. He can do it today. If you would bow your your knee and give your life to him and make him the leader of your life. Let's close this morning by bowing our heads and spending time in prayer.
And if you are here this morning and, and uh, you want to begin that relationship with God, you want to have your life changed. Maybe you didn't know that you were dead in your sins. Maybe you thought you were a pretty good person. But as we saw this morning, the Bible says that all of us are dead. All of us are born sinners with the need of a savior. And that's what Jesus is. You can reach out to him this morning. You can say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Jesus, I want you to change me. Jesus, I want you to be the leader of my life. You can do that simply by praying in your heart something like this. Say this to God, not to me, not to anybody else, but to God. Say, dear God, I am a sinner. I know that now. I need you in my life. Please forgive me. Please change the outcome of my life. Please take away that sin. Replace it with your righteousness. Lord, give me a home in heaven. And if you ask that prayer this morning, the Bible says that Jesus heard it. He says that you're a new person and you're alive with him. If you prayed that prayer this morning, everyone's heads are still bowed and we don't want to embarrass you, but just so that we can know, so that we can pray for you as a church and as pastors, would you be willing to slip up your hand to say, Pastor John, I prayed that prayer this morning and gave my life to God. I began a new, fresh walk with him today. Amen. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe, maybe you have a relationship with God, but maybe you've just been stuck in your sin You've just been stuck in um, kind of where you've been and, and you need a fresh start here in 2011. Maybe you need to cry out to that sympathetic high priest and say, God, change me. How much do you want to overcome your sin? Are you willing to let go of it? Are you willing to get the, the help you need, to get the accountability that you need? Maybe this could be a fresh start for you. You can kind of, Offer that prayer to God as well. As we respond this morning through this closing song, it gives you a chance to to offer that fresh to him. But don't let it stop there. Don't let it stop here. Take those steps that you need to overcome sin. We are available as a church. There's a body here of believers that are equipped to help you overcome sin. You are not stuck. You are not who you are now. You can be who God wants you to be if you will let him. Let's sing the song as we respond this morning.